0: Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd, widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan, filmmaker, and Liberty Portal producer. All right, guys, welcome back to Liberty Portal podcast, episode number five. David, you are reporting remotely from where?
1: Missoula, Montana.
0: What takes you to Missoula? Uh,
1: You know, we have, uh, for my work, we have communities all over Montana uh, and supporters all over Montana. So we have some folks in Missoula that are particularly interested in our work on campus-free speech and we have some great bills coming up this session about that, so I'm out here
0: talking to folks about that. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in. I know it's a little bit later than we're normally used to recording, but glad to have you even from afar. The yeah, sad this
1: is going to be an interesting technical experiment on remote podcasting for us.
0: It is, and it's already somewhat failing. But we won't we won't bore you with those details. The sad part is you won't get to enjoy a zesty beverage.
1: And I'm over here just a (laughs) non-carbonated beverage, like some kind of untrustworthy person.
2: Like a plebe. water, drink Zesty. Today's episode (laughs) is brought to you by Zesty Pop, Mango Tango, sweetened with monk fruit, 15 calories, totally delicious.
0: And Henri is an entirely impartial party who's not affiliated with the company at all. (laughs) That is false. (laughs) actually that reminds me before we get too far, I do have to issue a correction on behalf of our friend Griff and your business partner, uh, in episode two, uh, he did misspeak. At least I think it was a misspeak. I'm pretty sure he wasn't trying to deliberately mislead anybody. He quoted a stat of something like 40% of Americans have diabetes. Actually, it's like 42% of Americans are obese according to the CDC and actually about 11.3% of Americans have diabetes. So, Probably just mixed up some numbers there, but um, we will admonish him firmly and uh, obviously banish him from the podcast for some period of time. (laughs) And obviously, we have to reset the days since fake news counter to zero. Uh, But, you know, the podcast has only existed for about three weeks, so it's not too bad. But, uh, anyways, got that out of the way. So,
1: someone. I, I make mistakes all the time. We all make mistakes. You know, one of the great things about podcasting is it's, it's the truest experiment in free speech. And, and a big part of that is, is saying, ah, I, I screwed up.
0: Totally. And it, it happens so to the best bad? of us. Is that so wrong?
1: Absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's, it's right. it is what so it there's is. There's nothing wrong with it.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. No, we, we love Griff. He'll be back on the podcast, uh, again soon, but we'll make him bring receipts next time. So that, you know, we keep him on I mean,
2: one, one, uh, bad fact and this is hard (laughs) one lie in three weeks is still killing the mainstream media so you know we'll take it fair point and it's also not a deliberate lie either true not claiming
0: the mainstream media deliberately lies or anything of course i would never do that anyway let's get to it you guys um david what are we talking about today Oh,
1: man, there's so many great things to talk about. I mean, we've got some real stuff. I, I, I got it up here, and I hate to, to have to.
0: Sorry, I always oh, put you yes. on the spot doing this.
1: No problem. You always do that. I, I kind of expect you to tell me what we're talking about. Okay, That's yes, okay. I, I
0: probably should. That's probably my job.
1: You got a laptop in front of me, and I'm not used to the laptop running game here. So uh, the uh, one of my favorite things was, does everyone remember the Inflation Reduction Act? How could you forget? So... Yeah, this this year, uh, in order to reduce inflation, the Congress decided to spend a bunch more money, right? And and it's really, it's, it's an interesting launching point, I think, to talk about what is the cause of inflation. And we've touched on it on some former episodes, but it's an interesting problem, right? Because they're saying, well, inflation is just low consumer confidence or inflation is uh, just not having a robust enough economy. So if we just spend more money, will increase consumer confidence and we'll have more uh, money moving through the system and therefore a better economy. But what it misunderstands is what inflation is, as a result of the expansion of the money supply. Uh, and they sold this entire package about how is, this is going to solve inflation. And then at Davos, our uh, former vice president, Al Gore, said, well, no, it wasn't really about that. It was actually just about climate <laughs> it was a, and, and and a bunch of people at the time were like, "Hey, this seems like a lot of spending all on Democrat industrial planning priorities. It seems like it has nothing to do with ending inflation, but it's called the Inflation Reduction Act. What are we doing here?" And we a lot of people said this, and the in the press just blew right by it and said, "Well, don't you want to stop inflation?"
2: <laughs> and, I mean, it, it's the typical trick that they pull. You know, it's just like the Patriot Act is is a the least patriotic bill I've ever passed. It's just about spying on Americans. And and I, I was uh, I wasn't aware that they were um, making the case that uh, boosting the economy was somehow able to fight inflation. That doesn't even make sense from a Keynesian perspective, um, it, let alone an Austrian or a, a logical perspective. So.
0: Yeah, what was the logic there? Well,
2: I'm, I'm trying to give the steel man argument,
1: <laughs> and that's how weak it is. Well, you're doing it a is, bad I mean, job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's such a strange thing, right? Because um, from it's it's hard for me to divorce, you know, my understanding of the economy for what they were doing with the Inflation Reduction Act. And the, I mean, you would think if you're saying this is Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to reform monetary policy and fiscal policy. You know, fiscal policy in this contesting in this context means the fiscal house of the federal government and how much money they take in and, and push out, uh, how much debt they loan and then inject in the economy through spending. So I, I, I'm I'm very it's very curious, but it, it is definitely a situation where this was an obvious lie, where they sold the Inflation Reduction Act on false premises that was never their intended purpose, and only now are they decided to let everybody know. Oh yeah, by the way, the the whole time we knew it had nothing to do with inflation, and we we're just actually doing a climate bill.
0: Yeah, you you almost expect it's like okay, he sort of said the quiet part out loud, you know, in front of his mm-hmm. buddies at Davos or whatever, and you expect that, but it's as if. Either, you know, they want to just like, haha kind of, you know, laugh at us in retrospect and say, well, we got this through and you didn't realize it, or he, he doesn't expect that the rest of the world is watching everything that Davos does, especially now after years of us hearing all these narratives that have come out of there that, you know, are pretty unpleasant and, uh, you know, pretty elitist of them to put forward. Do you think it's one or the other? Do you, do you think he's just kind of gloating or do you think he's oblivious to the fact that everyone is watching what he's saying?
1: I think the likelihood that he is held accountable because he's a non-state actor now is very low. I think the likelihood that the press will then go to Democrat leadership and say, Hey, this is, you sold this as this. And you know, a former vice president of your party just said it wasn't that what, how do you respond? Uh, is very low and it's just not going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not that I don't think, I don't think it's like, I don't know. I think the question of like how influential Davos is or stuff like that, maybe they're, you're kind of teasing at that. I'm not sure. But to me, it's just we just don't have systems accountability for elite people.
2: It was this the same clip where he was just ranting and raving? Um, did anybody else see that clip? I mean, was I the only yeah. one that thought he sounded like Alex Jones? <laughs> like, not only just because he was going on a rant, but just to the literal tone of his voice. Yeah, he kind of has a little bit of a Southern draw. And he has a little bit of gravel in his voice, Now he's getting a little older. And he's, you know, I, was, I, I thought he was about to start, you know, yelling about how they're turning the freaking frogs gay, or if we something. We don't, don't
0: save the climate. We're gonna turn all the frogs gay.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was, you know, right about to slip, but totally. maybe, maybe that's no, just me.
0: The, no,
1: I agree with you. I think the Jones vibe was real.
0: Yeah, there was some <laughs> serious like conspiracy alarmism going on there for sure. Yeah, he he definitely okay. had a had a good Alex Jones vibe going. Um, but it's of, the
1: common thread, right? He was literally in the moment, he was like, I'm going to excite the youth. And so then he, <laughs> he turned it into fifth gear, man. He really pumped it up. The guy's 80 years you're eighty years old.
0: No way. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I Plant burgers have done him He looks good well. for his age. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm crust. There you go. <laughs> <come. laughs>
0: now you're getting a conspiratorial, all right? Oh, man. Exactly.
1: I love that stuff. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm teasing.
0: No, you're not. I'm, t- I'm telling your employer <laughs>
1: <laughs> can't make jokes about adrenal chrome.
0: Nope. Off limits. I'm sure we will be demonetized on YouTube before we are even allowed to be monetized on YouTube. Now,
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, speaking of conspiracies though, shifting gears slightly, uh, the doomsday clock just ticked up to 90 seconds from midnight, meaning we're 10 seconds closer, I believe to the end of the world. Isn't that exciting? What do you guys think of that?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm always reminded of The Watchmen. You ever read that comic book or see that movie?
0: Seen the movie. I'm not a comic book nerd, so I'm tap out on oh, this man. one.
1: Oh uh, man, Joe. As far as pure literature, just from a standpoint of literature of like character, plot development in a story, The Watchmen by Alan Moore is one of the best works of fiction ever. Period. It's incredible. Uh, and as far as especially the metaphysics and the um uh the ontology, the human investigation into human nature and our and our propensity to to self-annihilate. It's fascinating. Um piece of work on that. But the but in it it has it plays on the analogy of the doomsday clock in these really interesting ways because it, it was a big part of our culture at one point. Um you remember back in during 9 – Everything was a code orange or red or green or whatever. And it just became part of our culture. Uh, it, it's I don't really know what – I think COVID policy might be our our current parlance. Like every, all of a sudden, everyone became epidemiologists. Well, back in the 1970s and 60s, the doomsday clock was a big part of that, it was a way to think about. Like everyone knew how nuclear weapons worked and everyone knew – the, how uh, how likely the threat was uh, based upon this idea of this clock. It, but what one of the interesting things I saw about that story was a lot of the titles of the Western coverage was all about how the unprovoked attack from Russia was the cause of this clock change. But when you read the actual, com, you know, comments from the scientists in this, they are much more nuanced. It's about both the response of, you know, both the invasion by Russia, which is bad and they condemn it, and America America's obvious uninterest in not pursuing a diplomatic solution, in uh, Ukraine's complete disinterest in pursuing a, a diplomatic solution. Um, and the rhetoric around these things, not to mention the throttling up of things like what happened today with selling tanks uh, to uh, we now have hypersonic missiles uh, on a battle cruiser moving through the seas. Uh, towards us too. We have an interesting story about that today as well.
0: Yeah, yeah, I find it really interesting. So, like, let, let's dive into those a little bit. So, the U.S. sent officially sent tanks to Ukraine, or was it to Poland? You know, I guess Ukraine by way of Poland. Is that kind of what happened?
1: Yeah. So it was. It's an interesting story, right? Because the Germans said, uh, "Yeah, someone should send them some tanks." And I was like, "Well, you guys have tanks. You guys should send them to them. it." I was like, "Well, we'll do it if the Americans do it." <laughs> oh.
0: Oh, so we have to do it. For, okay, I got it. We have now, to do everything now, around here.
1: How, here's here's a little history trivia. How many wars has America got into because we were providing weapons to a combatant and then got attacked?
2: I uh, How many world wars or just wars in general?
1: How many wars did we get into that that, that happened in the last
2: 200 years?
0: I almost want you to not give us the answer and we'll just leave this hanging until the following episode, but I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess seven. I was going to say six.
1: Wow. That's a lot. Guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are these, are these declared so, wars or are these uh, undeclared conflicts?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm only thinking of two, but there might be three, right? And I, and I, that's part of this is it might be a gap in my knowledge, Fair, but at least the Spanish American war and world war one were both situations in which we were moving weapons Uh, personnel to war zones and then had a ship blow up and then said, well, now we're getting into this war. And so so is that a situation we could be finding ourselves in as we increase the amount of weapons that we're sending over to Europe? Uh, Is that increase in likelihood when we're moving tanks and people to train the use and maintenance of these tanks?
0: It seems all but inevitable to me that we get more and more involved. I mean, it it doesn't seem like sending tanks is a way of getting the United States any less embroiled in this conflict.
2: Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just another way to slosh more money around at the very least. And it's certainly not going to deescalate anything. And I guess, you know, going back to the, the doomsday clock, it just makes me think about how, while Trump was in office, everybody was up in arms about how he's going to bring us to the brink of world war three. And now here we are, and it seems as if the peop- those same people are now cheering for this as, as if they they almost want us to be involved in the next ca- catastrophic world war so that's crazy
0: and so right true i mean how quickly hearts and minds change uh from one administration to the next although you know not much has changed in policy really it seems like uh Although I guess I don't know, Trump did some good things for foreign policy, right? He started our withdrawal from Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Biden finished it, to so to speak, (laughs) in a rather haphazard manner. But you know, I guess it. uh, Well, it begs the question: What's the end game? Like, what are they planning on? Right? Are they are they planning on a on a hot war with Russia? Is is that really what the people pulling these strings want to happen? I mean, I would say Biden, but I don't think that Biden is actually making these calls. I think it's his. You know broader cabinet and advisors and everything
2: I would think it has more to do with just creating a a black box that money could go into and and people don't really know what's going on it's It's just as soon as we get out of one war we get into another, and you know we're pretty haphazard with how we spend our money domestically in the first place when we have even less tabs on you know how Ukraine is spending our our money so uh, that to me seems like the end game is just to have a war that never ends, or have another conflict that we can, you know, rile up support and, and send people's money over there. Yeah, yeah, I
0: saw a headline recently that said that I believe it was a top general um, was saying that he didn't see the Ukraine conflict ending any time mm-hmm. in the next year, at least. Which, I think it was Pompeo. Yeah, that yeah. might have been. What do you think?
1: That's, that's a that should be a distressing thought. If people are listening to this and they're like, this is this is a really distressing, uncomfortable idea. The idea that you have the most powerful institution in the history of the world with the power to blow up and ruin the planet's survivability for carbon-based life forms forever. And there's no plan. There's no one at the wheel. There's no one steering the ship. We're just Going loose out into the wild blue yonder, with a megalomaniacal like commitment to spending money for itself for its own sake. Uh, that's that's a, that's a that's a that means if you feel that way, you've gotten a moral calculus. Still, you you are sane, and the best way to go forward is to say is to hold people accountable to a tangible plan for this foreign policy that actually is focused towards peace and eliminating this war rather than continuing to double down into a perpetual spend.
0: Well, I'd like to ask you both, you know, to that end, for people that do feel like they are sane and that these this foreign policy that we're embarking on is absolutely insane, but feel out of control, feel disempowered to do anything about it because we see... Tens of billions of dollars repeatedly going into this conflict. You know, even though I think the vast majority of Americans disagree with that, um, I don't know if polling supports that, but I mean, I know that I disagree with it personally. I don't feel very empowered to, you know, to change this scenario at all. What would you say to people who feel that way?
1: The first rule of politics to make change is to get organized, get with other people. Find those other people by first speaking out to the networks that you have influence on, uh, getting into the larger community beyond your more intimate networks, discovering who those people are and meet with them. That's the first thing. It, it No change ever happened bottom up by individuals acting in isolation. It can happen when individuals act in isolation to find larger groups of people and to organize with them. You start an entrepreneurial effort, a podcast, for example, and you start talking about things that are really concerning to you, and then other people coalesce around that. Uh, that's how change happens. But it, it, it real political change doesn't happen top down in a singular column like that. It happens from a more bottom up. We're talking civil rights, ending slavery, ending the draft, um, even even more academic and more uh, you know high minded things like deregulating the airlines in the ni- late nineteen seventies. Each of those things happened by groups of people articulating what they were concerned about, uh, casting a better vision for the future, and then holding you know public officials accountable to that vision. Um, it, you know, it, it both, and I'm not just, I'm not, I'm honest, I'm not actually pitching what I do for a living, although that's a, it's a pretty good summary of kind of what AFP does. It's more has to have to do like, hey, on the issue of foreign policy, I don't know who to go for, to, for that. Someone needs to start that organization, perhaps. Um, if you... If 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 all of a sudden there were peace rallies like there were in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, um, you know that would change the calculus on Ukraine. But that's up to everyday people hearing the message and making a decision, making a change in their in their life to to say I'm going to spend some time on this.
2: I, I would sort of push back against that a little bit. I mean, not not to say anything you said was wrong per se, but the 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 peace rallies in 2007 2008 got Barack Obama elected and led to more wars and mm-hmm. really the only purpose of those rallies was was to just uh you know rally against president bush for good reason and it, i i would say if anybody's out there listening wants to get serious about you know ending a war it's it's not going to be a Democrat or a Republican, even though Trump was the first you know president in 40 years not to start a new war, I doubt he's going to, I doubt he would be able to end this one. But if you want to get serious about ending a war, you got to get into the Mises caucus and let's get Dave Smith elected as, you know, naive as that might sound. I mean, it is the only serious candidate that's going to end a war
1: let me let me uh make a note too it did actually stop a war it stopped obama from invading syria in 2013 with uh. troops on the ground yeah so we had a much lighter touch in syria afterwards i'm not endorsing that policy uh but the the it was the peace movement that generated that put him into office kept him from being more aggressive than he otherwise would be I'm- you're right he was a complete liar on all these things um but the the I was in D.C. in 2013 when the so-called gas attacks happened that turned out to be B.S. When Obama said there was this red line and then they went over the red line and then he started accelerating towards war. And then the Capitol was flooded with peace protesters saying, no, not again. And he backed off like it's it's completely different dynamic because of that. Now, we still end up getting involved in that war partially because of Hillary Clinton. Definitely check out Scott Horton's book enough already. Um, But it's not in that story is complex from there. But no, it would have been a completely different situation. We would have had Iraq 2.0 with a full-scale invasion and regime change rather than a CIA operation with McCain and all this other stuff that happened. So that would have been far worse. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying <laughs> – endorsing Barack Obama with your peace movement thing. But no, those, these peace marches – and I'm a little bit older than you, brother, so the, from what I remember of them, they started far earlier in 2007, 2008. They were going all the way back to 2005. Uh, these things were – all over the place for four years of his second term. Uh, and it wasn't all partisan. A lot of these things were um, very much nonpartisan ideological, you know, movements. Now these get diverted into people and people get obsessed with like a figure. And then that figure lets them down. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's actually what we're experienced with Trump right now um, in the kind of the right wing, old, right pro-peace movement is they don't know where to go because they don't have a main figure.
2: I, I'm definitely all for peace rallies and peace marches. I just think those those ones in the during the Bush regime were largely leftist activists who don't give a damn anymore about ending wars, and mm-hmm. you know they only rally now for you know uh, LGBT or uh, equity or whatever is the the new hot button issue that they're told to rally for. Um, So. Yeah. And I was going to ask you
0: both really quick. I mean, to that point, do you think that we are in a place similar to 07 08 where enough of the population are opposed to this war or just war in general versus those that are actively ardently supportive of this war for whatever reason Uh, to actually make a movement like that successful.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure from a strategic point of view, could we actually pull that off? I don't know. Uh, What I do know is that you don't know it's a discovery mechanism, right? This is an entrepreneurial opportunity for someone to differentiate themselves from wherever they're at to create a market differential and make some profit uh, in organizing against Ukraine, potentially. Uh, Additionally, there could be a lot of people who are more concerned about it, but they just don't know that it's a concern to be concerned about, right? Because the the way it's covered in the press. Uh, and, I, and I do want to note too, though, that the gains from these things are actually really interesting, right? So I think you would be surprised about the amount of people who came out of the left into the Ron Paul movement because of those peace activism uh, going into and Barack Obama, letting them down.
2: Oh, I'm, I'm definitely uh, yeah. one of those people. So yeah. I'm no um, surprised there. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And there's, there's a lot of... Uh, it's an interesting thing, right? Because people get interested in an individual and then they discover philosophy, right? Or they get interested in an issue and then they discover an individual and they get into philosophy. The goal is to drive people towards philosophy and a cohesive philosophy that actually helps them integrate their ideas and values and make sense of the world. If someone's providing that for somebody in a way that they can do that and say, oh, wait, I'm on the right side of history. And I'm doing the right thing with me and my time and my life. My life has more meaning and purpose because of this idea. That's, that's what that's what a pro peace movement should look like, um, and, and then it's going to get eaten up by politicians and people who try to take advantage of that opportunity. But that's not a bad thing. That's just a component. That's just human nature. Uh, it, our best way to do that is to strategize around that and say that's an inevitability. So how do we best capture people and move them into a long term commitment to a philosophy and the yeah. ideas? I when guess we, on that we note, the I would that get the to do so.
2: I would say this to to young people who are enamored by leftist. Uh, politicians or activists—these people who you think are on your side are trying to screw you, and they do not care if you go die in a war. So, vote libertarian. <laughs> this guy's just <laughs> a libertarian soundbite machine. <laughs> Audrey,
1: on on the on the on the LP cell train today. All right, I like it.
0: Love it. That's why I pay the big bucks. Yeah. Um, no, I mean I th- I think that is interesting. I mean I think the the LP is well positioned to be the only pro peace party of record in the, the you know the coming uh, election cycle, unless something drastic changes within one of the major two parties, um, and I think that's a huge opportunity. And whether it's Dave Smith or it's somebody else, I mean, I think as this conflict escalates, we have the potential for more and more people to go. Actually, wait, I'm really not sure this is a good idea. As the reality sets in that there's a Russian warship with. 7,000 mile per hour, hypersonic missiles on board sailing towards the United States, that sort of thing gets pretty scary and pretty real pretty fast. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, it might be enough to sort of peel some people out of the hypnosis of yes, just support the next thing. And the next thing is Ukraine uh, just long enough to capture them and bring them into a movement. So maybe, maybe you've heard it here first. Maybe the Liberty portal uh, pro peace rally is coming to a city near you. (laughs) Let's do it. Let's make it happen down. We kind of rallied through all the political stuff. I mean, the last thing we have here is uh, in sort of the economic and finance news, Senator Josh Hawley introduced the Pelosi act to stop insider trading in Congress, uh, which I for one think is a great thing. I don't know how, isn't
2: that already illegal? Well, absolutely it is,
0: but I don't know how, uh, I don't know how a congresswoman like Uh Nancy Pelosi goes from a salary of what a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to a net worth of a couple hundred million dollars without doing some well insider trading i mean i think it's pretty obvious that they all do it you know the fed governors were doing it that came out last year like they're all doing it they're all complicit will this change anything if it was already illegal and they were still doing it like well maybe no but at least somebody's paying attention and at least offering some semblance of of uh you know a solution (laughs) for those of us out here like dude what the hell (laughs) this is just such obvious corruption and again it's disempowering like you you, they're just flaunting it in front of us and we can't do a damn thing about it
1: a lot of this is interesting because there are there are already existing controls i don't know a lot about the howley bill so i'm not gonna comment on the details but i i know a lot of controls already exist but there's obviously ways around them it's difficult to say hey uh joe uh your spouse is, has this position with the government, so you, Joe, can't do certain things. That's a, that's a pretty difficult thing uh, to regulate someone based upon who they're married to.
0: Well, yeah, it's, uh, it's also it's hard unag- to say, hey, Nancy, you know, don't go home and tell your husband what you just heard in this particular committee that you're in.
1: Right, right. Difficult thing to, to, to regulate. Uh, what it ultimately gets down to is that this is an inevitable result of government being way too big and way too powerful. Insider trading is not even a bad thing. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, can it, you elaborate it, on
0: that for those people out there going, "What the hell?"
1: <laughs> so, in trader trading, when it's government using their power to rig markets is a terrible, evil, bad thing. In trader so trading, when when the government uses special information that only they have because of intelligence apparatuses and things like that, I I'm, I'm, I would object to those things. I don't, I'm not I'm not. I not, not say it's terrible and evil. It's just unfair. But when it comes to I am a person who works at a company or I have special knowledge about my company or another company, and I use that knowledge in order to make bets in the marketplace, that is actually important information that we're depriving the economy of uh, and and an important component of the market economy itself in a state of freedom. Walter Block has a great uh, defense of insider trading that everyone should definitely check out.
2: Is that in uh, defending the undefendable?
1: I I mean, it's. It's, 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 it's important to like, like, no, like, and I'm not an expert in this area. So finance isn't my biggest, uh, um, area of, of, knowledge, but the, the line between insider training and not insider training is, is, I mean, I think it's I I don't know how it's consistently enforced. It seems like it's very not objective.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm still struggling to, to understand why that is more important that the market have that information, um, I'm still struggling to understand why it's not illegitimate for someone who has prior knowledge of a fact about their company to act on that knowledge before anyone else who is a stakeholder in that company. Like, is that, is that not unfair to those individuals who are invested in that company thinking, you know, things are going well when maybe someone inside knows there's fraud going on and is actively shoveling their cash out the back door. Like that seems, that seems wrong.
1: Well, fraud is wrong. Um, and, and, and people who violate contract, right. Should be prosecuted according to those contracts, but that's not insider trading.
0: But if you, so if you knew that, uh, you were going to miss earnings by a long shot and your stock was going to tank, you, you Mm -hmm. should be able to take your money out of the company before anybody else.
1: Yeah. I don't see what reason why the state needs to be involved with that. Now you might have a contract within your corporation that prevents you from doing that. Right, I think that's completely legitimate uh, and can be governed that way. But it, I, I'm not. I I, I, I fail to see where the state actually comes and can differentiate between knowledge that's necessary versus knowledge that's neither fraudulent nor you know it's just contemporary knowledge. It, 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 there's lots of examples of insider trading, and I'm, f- I'm failing to bring them up right now. I should have done my homework a little bit better on this uh, beforehand. But I didn't know we were going to talk about the story, so yeah, forgive me. We'll have to dive into it another time and uh, about exactly when when insider trading actually creates losses on the market that would otherwise be good. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. there there could be you want to be careful to differentiate between what could be governed by contract voluntarily and should be just part of you know standard business practice law as opposed to what we need to criminalize in criminal courts. That there are good arguments out there for why it shouldn't be a criminal law uh, and why it could probably be handled best by individual and property contract. Um, and then you know. Also, if we want to talk about it, we should definitely talk about Iowa. Oh yeah, sure. What happened in Iowa today? Uh, the governor of Iowa signed a huge, very important education savings account bill. Uh, this is a massive change, right? So, education savings accounts are the gold standards of school choice legislation. Uh, for the first time, a midwestern state. When and it's and it's gonna. It's interesting, right? Because school choice has typically been passed by either very urban areas, like. Um, D.C. has school choice legislation, uh, like, you know, major cities, but not across entire states that have large rural populations because the biggest – the hard, one of the harder, you know, constituencies to help with school – to really sell school choice to is our rural schools. Uh, Iowa is a very rural place, and they are – they've passed a full-on education savings account program, uh, which is a, a form of backpack funding. Um, and I can dive into kind of what that program is if you guys – if that helps.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious. What does that mean?
1: Okay. So what it does is it says the proportion of your students' education spending that would normally go to that public school, if you uh, get into the education savings account program, gets put into an account. Like think of it like an HSA, but instead of on healthcare spending, it's for approved educational expenses. So you then could use that money, say it's seven grand a semester. You can use that seven grand, five grand goes into tuition, a thousand dollars goes into a supplemental educational therapy. Maybe you need extra helping because you're you know, reading because you're dyslexic. So you go to a special learning center for that. And a third one is you you want to participate in an after school sports program and you do that as well. You kind of can assemble an educational experience, you know, around using those taxpayer dollars directly to the vendor.
0: And so that means that students can pick whatever school they want to go to. They're not limited to a public school within a district or even just a public right. school at all.
1: Right. So the, moving between public schools, that's usually called open enrollment. Uh, that's actually being worked on in Montana right now, uh, so that a student can go from district one to district two with those no barriers or low barriers anyways. Uh, yeah. Education savings accounts are many steps beyond that. This is much closer to, this is an evolution. And for, for libertarians who know kind of older school libertarian, but aren't kind of up on the education choice movement, It education savings accounts are an innovation off of vouchers. So vouchers were an idea that the the, the, the the government would write a check that would normally well, – those funds that would go to a student as a public school would go to a private school and those dollars would follow them. The problem with that is it's very static and it has perverse incentives. So one of the perverse incentives of vouchers were for private schools to increase their tuition as much as possible, right? Because then they could fleece the government. Right. For more money. Right. What education savings accounts does is it does it by dollar and it says, hey, these are now your education savings funds for you to spend on a wide range. and allows for more customization for more students to get access to, uh, um, you know, education dollars that they can benefit from. Uh, so, for example, if you're a homeschool kid and maybe your special needs. So you get your homeschool curriculum on that. You get an online curriculum Uh, for some other dollars. And then you can spend occupational therapies at, you know, a speech therapist or an occupational therapist or a physical therapist, whatever helps you, uh, you know, succeed as a kid seeking to improve and self-actualize within their educational context, that's, that it it funds. Um, So it's kind of, what's critical about the program is having a a wide range of things that you can spend on uh, that, that are approved educational expenses putting most of the burden on the parents to find out, okay, what's what what will help my kid the most achieve their educational ambitions?
0: Well, that's burden, but it's also opportunity for them to really especially customize, it sounds like. And, yes. and, and it also sounds like it's beneficial that, um, you know, because if you say elect to go to a private school, your tax dollars that you pay into the public education system in your area don't follow you in an ordinary system, right? They still go to the public school system, you're still paying those taxes. You don't get the benefit of them. Is that correct? That's right. So under this system, that effectively is changing. You're getting the benefit of those tax dollars to spend as you wish.
1: Yeah, we should fund education for students, not funding top-down systems. That's the difference. One is focused on the individual child and their individual education. The other one's focused on funding systems to treat kids like a factory item, just stamping out education like a factory model. When what... What we really want is a craft model. What we want is a model that says every individual student has unique needs and isn't going to in the same educational approach is not going to work for every kid. Some kids are going to succeed more in a Montessori or in a homeschool or in a school small group program. Others are going to be Waldorf or want to do something more, you know, a military school or a Christian academy or any of these sorts of things. So the the kind of the breadth of both like selecting values that matter for parents uh, as well as like emphasis. So some students some some charter schools or other kinds of private schools are much more focused on internationalism and like teaching kids about other cultures and art or engineering and science and math. There's a wide range of that. And one of the interesting things about school choice, especially education savings account is it creates the opportunity for entrepreneurism in this area, where if you're in a rural place right now that's underserved because you have a little monopoly that everyone has to pay into. Once you have education savings accounts, you can say like, well, how can I create a product that would help a rural kid in this environment to be able to get access to education that they otherwise couldn't? I can go after those dollars as an entrepreneur and then go capture and, and provide a service.
0: That seems like a really great thing. What uh, what led up to this opportunity uh, happening in Iowa specifically?
1: So this is this – is, Iowa is just the most recent state and a whole bunch of states that have been passing – uh, radical education choice legislation. So we had Arizona, New Hampshire, uh, and uh, West Virginia all pass within the last uh, 2021 and 2022. That's awesome! Huge movements. And and before then, education, education savings accounts were small, limited experiments in small some small areas on the around it. Well, you really want to, you want to dig into this, uh, listeners. Definitely check out edchoice.org. They have a full breakdown of every school choice sh- school choice program in the country and it's in its virtues and its vices what's good about it what's not good about it and uh, and kind of how to make it better and it's a great opportunity great platform for activism and making the advancing school choice issues.
0: Montana is working on something obviously they said was a few steps behind this but are other states currently working on similar legislation?
1: Mm-hmm. I know Utah's working on it. Uh <sighs> I know there's some other kind of states up in the in the in the south and northwest that are also working on it, too. Awesome. I can't remember which ones that right now. Uh, but, yeah, I know a lot of legislation and, and really why those other states also got that momentum was covid. Mm. Uh, a lot of people saw what their kids were learning in school in 2020 and they're like, I do not support this. And then other <laughs> other parents were, you know, saying like this workload is just silly and I'm I don't understand what my kids are learning. Uh, Other ones started saying, like, why am I sending these kids to this public school when, you know, they're learning from home and I actually have to teach them? Why don't I just homeschool or join a co-op or a pod learning environment? Pod learning is a very fascinating result of 2020, where when school shut down, parents spontaneously on their own said, I'm not a good teacher and neither are you, friend of that also has kids. So let's hire a teacher and we'll put them in my garage and the teacher will teach our two kids
0: and those grew them uh, up in the garage. <laughs>
1: yeah, those grew to groups of like 13, 14, 20 kids, right? There's some kind of Dunbar's number in there about how many kids in in a class and can you still be efficient. So, those pod learning environments became the own little schools. Well, and then the, then for quickly those people was like, "Why am I double paying? Why I, I, this my kids flourishing in this pod learning environment, but now I got to send them back to the public school cuz it's reopened again." And maybe they're not doing as well. And I'm like, why? But if I want to leave now, I got to double pay. I got to pay my property taxes on this. I can't get the fall of my kid. So I think it's really created the demand in a lot of ways. And lastly, I think things like, uh, and, and to kind of get into the uglier side of it, I think kind of the less push on Drag Queen Story Hour and the kind of like the culture war is a big part of this. And it kind of sits in the background of the whole thing, too. Uh, just how exactly public schools are in telling kids not just how to think but what to think about values that are important to the the people who run the schools. Um and that's fine actually in 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 my vision, people who have those values should be able to start schools and tell kids, you know, what they think about sexuality when they think they should be able to do that and identity and all that kind of stuff. Just don't force me to pay for it and don't force my kids into that school. Right. That's only Uh,
0: valuable in a libertarian context if you have the option to leave that environment and not fund that environment if you don't agree with it, right?
1: Exactly. And the whole history of public education is one of people trying to use education to shape the social structure. Without that, nothing makes sense in the history of our education policy. Now, for example, uh, the Blaine Amendment is a classic amendment that's in lots of state constitutions. Uh, Basically, what it said is that uh, you can't use public dollars to fund sectarian schools, literal sectarian schools. And the reason why that existed was because when public schools were first forming, their biggest competitor were Catholic schools that had already formed. So Catholics came to the United States, enclave together, like we talked in our – that's the word I should have used before, but I said ghetto together in our immigration episode. (laughs) Enclave is probably a, a nicer word to uh, together to uh, talk about school, uh, um, or sorry, to, 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 to get education to their kids. When they did that, they started these Catholic schools. A lot of those Catholic schools started directly competing with the public schools uh, that were publicly funded and started saying, hey, well, we, we're double paying. We want those funds. So anti-Catholic bias became the reason why we would have public schools and public schools spread, not to mention things like Blaine Amendments. Um, that specifically were saying well we need to get the catholics into uh, their and sc- our schools so we can Protestantize them turn them into protestants that was the goal
0: so there was religious prejudice involved in all of the decision making there at, at the state at the governmental correct. level
1: yeah correct so, and so they, and they and 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 it's been that way ever since the, the progressive era we started the school like pledge allegiance and stuff like that because of nationalism, because we wanted to form more more national identity as a country, the uh, teaching about American history is always so conf- is always so you know competitive, and such a huge issue when it comes to school issues because people are trying to shape people's values and identity as citizens because that's the goal of public school is to homogenize everybody to think alike, not to <laughs> not to encourage individual free thought and these other things. No, the entire structure of the Prussian education system, which we use in our public schools is to homogenize and turn everybody to think alike
0: well and not just think alike but i think well at least in my experience to think like a leftist because all of my history professor the teachers in high school and well college especially as well but high school particularly were definitely just straight up socialists like che guevara posters on the walls and stuff like unabashed (laughs) but i was in western washington as well so (laughs) perhaps that's a bit more of a hotbed for that sort of thing but in any sure. case really really fascinating yeah, but, the,
1: the, but, the, but then they're they're open about it they're saying well we we can encourage civic values so that we can make society into one thing rather than actually encouraging pluralism yeah, actual tolerance
0: right actual, actual diversity yeah
1: yeah right so that's that's the that's the crazy thing about it is that education choice is the most radical way to open up society to be more tolerant more diverse and more able to satisfy kids' individual educational needs simultaneously.
0: That's awesome. I hope that uh, it's successful in other places. And uh, yeah, it was well, ed- edchoice.org to find out more? Yes, definitely. Awesome.
2: Check we'll, them out. We'll put a link in the show notes as well. Any thoughts on all this, Henry? No, that was all really well said. I don't, I don't have anything else to add.
1: Oh, man, I was really hoping Henry would hit me with the, but school choice is actually a bad thing <laughs> argument that's happening in libertarianism
0: right now.
2: Joseph Hornberger
1: came out with this big thing that was just like, libertarians should oppose school choice.
0: I want to know more about that. Why is, why is somebody opposing it? It sounds like a great thing to me
1: because the only options are abolish public private public schools or nothing at all. Those are the only two choices according to this particular line of thought.
0: Oh, so it's the, the age old libertarian all or nothing argument. Uh Right. Well, I think it's an
1: imperfect solution. So therefore there should not be a solution.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't even think that that needs to be refuted because that's (laughs) not the world we live in. It's not black and white. If you think that,
1: you should feel bad about it because it's not a good thought. I'm just kidding. Just playing.
0: It's just more nuance. There's more nuance in the world than that, right? It's the shades of gray here. I mean, we didn't get to where we are in one giant leap. We got here in many, many very small steps. We should look at the, the, the journey back to where we want to get to in the same light, right?
1: My personal project Throughout my entire career, since I first came across these ideas and got excited about them, I wanted to dedicate my life to advancing them, was trying to articulate the way to get there, right? And the best way that – the most succinct way I've been able to try to formulate this is to say we need to talk about big ideas that are radical and interesting and will change the world while advocating and being willing to take the steps to implement real change in our lifetime so that we can demonstrate how our principles make the world a better place. And every time we do that, to say, hey, there's this problem, this housing crisis, this education crisis, this foreign policy problem, this immigration problem. And we say the ideal vision is this and it's a long ways and it's hard to imagine and we got great arguments for those. And then in the meantime, we should support this bill and this thing that take us, that get us 20%, 30%, 80% of what we're doing. And then in our opportunities where we can take big leaps, we should take big leaps and where opportunities are that we should take small steps because it's the best thing we can do because we have people of integrity who are actually working these issues that we trust and can work with, then, then that's what we do. And we should support those folks. But for some reason there's a griftership in the Liberty movement specifically saying, Oh, we're, we're getting success. We really need to stop this and we need to make sure that because it's not perfect, we need to knock it off. And that's, that's just, it's just, I I get it, man. I'm a philosopher. I get the ideas, but if we can't do that, then we're, we're going to stay a minority opinion that is, that is completely irrelevant when it comes to actually making the world more free.
0: Well, it's just and, like we were talking about in episode one, right? With you know the idea of creating coalitions and working with a variety of different groups and individuals and legislators and otherwise on making these incremental changes and, and making the LP relevant by being willing to play ball. Like if you don't play ball, no one's going to play with us and we're not going to Ever become more relevant or more effective or potent as a political force than we currently are,
1: and, and and I just think there's so many things more proximal to people that they can make a difference in if they just spend some time organizing around it. Like your state, no matter where you're listening to this, has opportunities to advance liberty. I guarantee you, your locality does. It depends on the context. It depends on lots of things. But if you if you if you were just aware of all the opportunities that exist. Because from my perspective, what I've done over the last seven years, all I see are opportunities everywhere. Uh, but libertarians who are much more interested in the latest drama someplace far more, are far more interested in that or far more interested in, in what they said behind doors in Davos rather than what's going on at their state capitals while it's in session right now.
0: I think that's a really, really key point. Uh, I mean, we are no, nowhere are we more able to make substantive change than at the most local level possible. And we do often get distracted by global issues, national issues, things that are making headlines, but fail to notice that the real impacts on our lives are the ones that are decided tens or hundreds of miles away, not thousands of miles away. And the more we focus on those things, the more we're actually going to be able to live lives that we really want to live and create the communities that we want to see. So I think that's I think that's super key. And I would like to dig into that more on future episodes and maybe give people who are out there saying, I think that's a great idea and I want to work in in that in that space. I want to try to organize people, but I don't know how perhaps we could dive into more of your knowledge on how people might start doing that if they don't Mm -hmm. if they don't currently know.
1: Right. Yeah, totally. I think there's lots of there's lots of opportunities in that space. and We should definitely talk about it. I call it I call it victory theory. I talk about theory of victory, how to how to build a libertarian case for how we advance our ideas that are coherent with our worldview and how we think the world works rather than contradictory to it. So, yeah, I've I've given a lot of thought about this over the years. I'm really excited to talk about it publicly.
0: Well, we're going to do a masterclass. We've decided here and now.
1: <laughs> Sounds good. So let's talk about libertarian drama now. What do we got? What was it? The tweet that we wanted to talk about? Oh, we throw the tweet oh, oh,
0: we got it. We got a hot tweet. We got a hot tweet coming out right know, now, y'all.
1: So right after I denigrate this, of course, we're going to talk about it because this is the spice, man. This is where the heat <laughs> gets brought in. We're not talking about education choice policy anymore. We're talking about real stuff. We're getting like into the
0: real weeds here. <laughs>
1: this Daily Wire goofball saying <laughs> some goofy stuff.
0: Hayden Clarkin says, I'm just in awe of Singapore's airport. And it's a it's a picture of or it's a video of a beautiful glass structure with trees and these light rail trains going through and Matt Walsh tweets in response to this Singapore is able to have nice things in part because they ex- execute drug dealers by hanging and arrest even pity vandals and thieves and beat them with a cane until they bleed we don't have nice things because we aren't willing to do what is required to maintain them
2: yeah I don't, I don't even know where to begin with how horribly wrong that is but I couldn't agree more. I am going to try to steel man this a little bit. And and also it does strike
0: home to me as well, because growing up in the greater Seattle area, that city was so beautiful and clean for so many years of my childhood and adolescence. And going back there now, it it is unrecognizable due to a myriad of factors, not least of which that the police there are not allowed by city council um, ordinances to actually arrest or incarcerate criminals that well, commit crimes like steal things and shit on the street and, you know, attack people like they would arrest them and they do, but they're just let out immediately. So I do see kind of where he's coming from on this, uh, especially in in America's urban centers that are more of the sanctuary city model where we kind of just let drug abuse and homelessness run rampant without real like solutions to that problem.
2: I guess what I would say is, is it's like, it's so just looking at the world through a straw because aside from a few very draconian laws that singapore does have it's one of the freest economies on earth and that is why they're able to have this miraculously beautiful airport is because for the past like 10 or several decades they've been one of the top 5 economies on on the planet David, do you have any thoughts before we move on to Moss? I don't
1: know. I don't know, Matt Walsh. Maybe it has something to do with not being a debtor nation. Maybe it has something to do they don't have to run a global empire. Maybe it has something to do with a whole range of things that have nothing to do with murdering people because they do something that you don't like. A drug dealer is far more virtuous than your average political pimp. Your average political person out there just fundraising to put money in their campaign so they can go vote to give their buddies more money. They have more virtue cuz at least they're not taking from anybody. At least they're giving someone something that they want rather than forcing it down their throats. I mean this this idea that these conservatives on this issue drive me crazy cuz they would never say this about dr- guns. You could have exactly this tweet if it was from a progressive saying, "Oh, the Singapore airport is so beautiful all because they don't allow firearms in Singapore." <laughs> and it would be true. Mm. The all the sentences there would be true. You're, they would say, oh yeah, that's obviously true. They're cherry if picking. If you share their values. They're
0: cherry-picking their favorite thing about Singapore and and equating it to <laughs> how the country is so great.
1: Yes. Yep. And, and and what the frustrating thing is that the problem of homelessness is ultimately a problem of the commons, which is a thing that conservatives all support. If we maximize private property rights, there how could you have major homeless problems? I, totally. I, I I mean, it, unless it was, you know, people who who hosted them voluntarily, like it, it's it's drive it. We have a homelessness problems because since the 1960s, we've we've systematically banned building housing, high, high density housing across almost of America. So I, and it's I'll, a I'll, issue. I'll send yeah, I'll send you a, a, a graphic for this. The the amount of housing startups in America has been decreasing steadily. It is since the 2010s have been absolutely abysmal. In part because we make, okay, it's classic government. First, we stopped building it because we we started regulating it. Then we started subsidizing it with subprime market loans and low interest rates and all this other stuff because it's the American dream. And now we're in a crisis mode of of people being unhoused because government's created a crisis. And then then housing, uh, homelessness has gone up so much since 2020 and all the COVID 2020 stuff. Now, I know Matt Walsh is probably better on those issues than a lot of Democrats or progressives or leftists. But keep in mind that that's a that's a function of the FDA and the CDC, all things of institutions of the state that completely screwed that entire thing up. So, like, don't don't tell me you're an institutionalist who believes in strong institutions for government and like all these conservative ideals on the space and then say, like, oh, well, if only we just killed all the private actors that did the things I didn't like, that would make it better. When your institutions are one that are failing, your local governments are failing when this should be a private property issue. So I, 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 I really, I, I get it from the perspective of like, man, if, if only we kept, if we kept theft, theft, but once again, most of this stuff is completely head in the opposite direction. The problem that we have, isn't that, you know, it fails to understand what most of the issues happening in the criminal justice space are actually a root cause of, and it, 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 it doesn't, it doesn't at all take the accountability that government has to creating these black markets in the first place.
0: Totally. It, 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 it says that the problems that government created in the first place can be solved by greater government intervention. Which is Yeah.
1: I mean it, that that murders people. Yeah. Right? So you're like, I don't want drug I don't want people out in the streets doing drugs. Okay, well get them off the streets, number one. That's the gov pro- for role of government is to keep people off of people's private property and out of the commons in, in ways that aren't conducive to commerce and people's individual livelihoods. Fine. But beyond that, get rid of the drug war. The reason why fentanyl's a problem is because it's the you if you someone puts fentanyl on your drugs, you can't go and sue them, or
0: You're you can sue the cartel, or you can't go to a licensed business and buy drugs that are clean from yeah. those substances exactly. that are going to harm you.
1: Exactly. Right. So it, it, it's it's such a crazy. It, it progressive cities were ruined by progressive policies for 50, 60 years now. I mean, hell, we could probably count it a hundred years. And the drug war is just another progressive policy that failed.
0: Was it progressive?
1: What, oh, yeah. Was that, was that who
0: started the drug war? Well,
1: what? prohibition was started by progressives.
0: Oh, prohibition. So starting with alcohol in the yeah,
1: yeah, and it was and it's communist. and it's the progressive impulse to say yeah. oh well, well just ban this other thing and this other thing. And this other. I mean we're all I mean the modern era of of okay, this is this may be a personal historical theory of mine, but from a perspective of political theory, the the entirety of the twentieth century is just all progressivism. It's all, I mean, the, oh, everything, yeah. some breed of progressivism in the United States. I mean, even the conservatives are just, they're just slower moving progressives, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, What what is, uh, I can't remember who, I'm going to steal this quote, but somebody says that, yeah, Republicans are just Democrats that drive the speed limit. Oh, yeah. Oh, that? that's who that's that? Michael Malice. Michael that, Malice yeah. says that. He says that, yeah.
1: <laughs> I, maybe I stole that from him. I just just flipped that around my head. You just and sit and the it. It seemed like it was my idea. New. Well, let's, yeah, yeah. let's keep I moving
0: on. Let's yeah. keep moving on and yeah. uh, check out Maj's reply here because Maj goes, imagine advocating for the beating of people who sell a product that other people want. Then imagine not understanding bodily autonomy and its relation to freedom, even for things we disagree with. Then imagine doing both, then pretending to understand freedom with three crying, laughing face emojis. and that's That's important. <laughs> because that's such a great reply, but Matt Walsh comes back at him Saying, imagine looking at our cities, utterly ruined by criminals and drug traffickers and exu- uh and excusing it on the basis of, quote, bodily autonomy. Also, imagine being a grown man using laughing face emojis while trying to engage in a serious debate. First of all, I wouldn't call anything ever done on Twitter a serious debate just from the get go. But fair. All right. But fair. What do you guys think of this reply from Matt Walsh? It's
1: boomer. It's just the <laughs> most boomer thing I could imagine. Just Dude, you're on the internet. Yeah, this is an yeah. Oxford debate. You're on Twitter. Seriously, of course you can use emojis. Seriously, like I'm gonna go police your use of smiley faces. What is this?
2: Yeah, it's a it's essentially an ad hominem attack to you know sidestep the issue and not want to take it take on his argument. Um, I mean, what's wrong with with uh, anything that Maj says? All he did was put part of Maj's argument in quotes as if that's some kind of argument.
0: Well, right. <laughs> and also calling out the, bodily autonomy when I bet you he's used that very argument on different subjects. Yeah. Like vaccines, like vaccines.
1: I mean, one of one of the interesting things here is that, that I see like kind of the meta thing happening here is conservatives like to use libertarian talking points to win elections and to gain audiences. And then as soon as they get an audience and some power in an election cycle, then they, tilt against that. And they say, well, actually we should just hang all the people I don't like.
2: Yeah, totally. And what what it's making me think is just like, it drives me nuts all the time. I mean, I I feel like these days conservatives are more aligned or libertarians, I should say, are more aligned with conservatives. And so we get kind of labeled as conservative light. And, you know, and other times conservatives will look at us and say, oh, well, that's just liberal light. Or I, You know, I've been accused of being a liberal or of being a conservative or this, that and the other. And it's I mean, it's it's completely the other way around. I mean, you know, we get we get called um, fiscally conservative and socially liberal as libertarians when really it's the it's the left that pretends to be socially libertarian and the right that pretends to be fiscally libertarian.
0: I like that. We need Uh, to start flipping that language on its head. That's good. Well, it looks like there was some more activity on this on this uh little Twitter spat here. Uh and I'm not sure. I'm not I guess
2: he replied I, to himself here. Looks like Matt Walsh replied to himself. I know Maj had some uh, a, a reply to that previous com- uh, comment about Imagine looking at our cities. Yeah. Uh
0: Okay. Yeah, he did. So he says, lame attempt at a deflection from your author- authoritarian viewpoint. You should leave America and move to Singapore since it's in alignment with the lack of freedom you seek. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Okay. And then, uh, well, it appears, I don't know exactly. What, what, did, uh, what did Liam? Our friend Liam McCollum weighed uh, in here. Imagine being a conservative that acknowledges how gun control relates to black markets and crime and not seeing how the same phenomenon occurs with the drug war. Also, imagine being a conservative and not seeing the drug war as a proxy for the larger war against guns.
1: Now, Liam is totally right about that, and it's it's absolutely r- ridiculous that conservatives can so can, can can believe that you can just treat America like a giant prison and just keep everybody all the things that you don't like out, and people won't.
2: They can't even keep drugs out of prisons.
1: Not to mention. There's actually pretty substantial studies in this area when it comes to comparative politics, when it comes to um, specifically comparative policies in justice. So harsh penalties don't necessarily mean better outcomes when it comes to criminalizing – when it comes to people committing crimes. The better predictor isn't a harsh penalty. It's consistency of enforcement. So when we talk about like theft, for example – um, theft in areas where they often talk about, oh, they 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 legalize theft is actually not usually very accurate. Usually, what happens is they they're reducing penalties because incarcerating people is far more expensive than not incarcerating people, right? So they're trying to save tax dollars. Now, what they should be doing is saving the tax dollars on reducing the amount of time people serve in prison or the kind of on-ramps to incarceration they should focus on reinvesting those dollars when this is doesn't is a set that doesn't have any reinvestment in consistency of enforcement so if you know that your petty theft is going to be prosecuted you're more likely not to commit theft but if you know it's unlikely to be prosecuted but if it does the penalties are very high you're you're much more likely to do theft does that make sense totally yeah so consistency enforcement is the underinvested area in criminal justice uh, the the penalty, harsh penalties, is typically where we go because it's emotionally satisfying in a paradigm of you can either be soft on crime or or uh, or hard or, or hard on crime. When that's a completely false paradigm, what we need to do is be able to make sure that the the incentives are to not do crime that matters, rather than diverting police resources to things like you know you know pu- giving someone a hard time for selling somebody psilocybin or you know g- giving someone a hard time for you know selling. If marijuana wasn't a problem; It's still a problem in some states in the union to this day, uh, incarcerating people for nonviolent drug offenses for that, and then associating that with an open air drug scene in L.A. After spending, I was redoing research today, and they were building homes for the homeless in L.A. Each each unit was ninety or was nine hundred thousand dollars. Yep. And, th- and this is a homelessness program mm-hmm. like it, it, this, that's not a homelessness program that's a jobs program that's 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 giving money to builders no kidding that's, that's <laughs> yeah, but the, the the idea that this is that this is just solved just by one issue on the drug war is absolutely absurd
0: well I think Maj got the upper hand in that one I think I think Matt Walsh made himself look well pretty uninformed and pretty authoritarian and definitely I mean I liked Matt Walsh prior to this tweet. I mean, I uh, I enjoyed his content. I think he has some some solid opinions, but he definitely he definitely lost me on this one.
2: I I would assume that this is like many things uh, a situation where people who agree with Matt Walsh think that he won, and people who agreed who previously agree with Maj think that he won, and nobody's really having their opinion changed much in one direction or the other. I mean, unfortunately
0: I, I did have my opinion change. Like I said, I mean, I think, no. I think Matt Walsh's work with what is a woman was, I mean, really compelling. And I enjoyed that. But I think you would probably
2: be somebody who was already having, you know, sympathies for both, both people here. So you had to pick a side, but somebody who's a typical conservative, you know, are, are, uh, the boomers for lack of a better term. And, uh, those those people probably think, oh yeah, Matt Walsh made a great point, and who the hell is this guy?
0: Yeah, and yeah, we should totally <laughs> execute the drug dealers. I yeah. mean, that's you're right. That's a very right. like conservative boomer perspective, isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, there you have it. Any final thoughts, guys? Before we wrap up?
1: No, I just I'm pumped to have see you guys again, talk to you guys again. I'm excited we got this whole technical issue figured out, and uh, excited to come back around and talk some more.
0: Well, guys, thanks for being here. David, thanks for tuning in all the way from a few hours down the road in Missoula. And uh, we'll see you back in Bozeman for uh, for an episode next week, hopefully.
1: Yep. Sounds great.
0: Thanks, all right. guys. Hey. Night, guys. Night, night. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Liberty Portal podcast. For more episodes, news, and Liberty-focused content, visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you like what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.